Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and a holistic adult and child psychiatrist. Today's episode is the second of a three-part series on mold toxicity. In the last episode, I talked about how we acquire mold toxins and mold colonization, where there's actually mold in the body, typically the sinuses, and the many symptoms and conditions that can be caused or worsened by mold toxicity. Brain symptoms could be depression, anxiety, panic, obsessions, compulsions, inattention, mood swings, and even psychosis. It is also a common culprit in autism and dementia. In this episode, I'll talk about testing and treatment for mold toxicity in the body. In the next episode, I'll be discussing addressing mold and water damage in the home and how we also evaluate for that. So though the body and the home are being discussed in separate episodes, these are typically being addressed simultaneously. I'll also comment on how I integrate treatment for other root causes that mold toxicity could be contributing to. These secondary issues, which I commented on in the previous episode, are mast cell activation, which relates to inflammation, high pyrroles, copper-zinc imbalances, undermethylation, which relate to nutrient imbalances, increased oxidative stress, which relates to toxicity, food sensitivities, autonomic dysfunction, which relates to the vagus nerve, and susceptibility to things like candida overgrowth, Lyme, and its co-infections, viruses, and even parasites. In this episode, I'll also comment on the importance of bringing in some of those right brain aspects of healing that I've talked about in previous episodes. So left brain activities are these very detail-oriented and I would say functional medicine approaches to getting toxins and mold out of the body. However, many other interventions that involve what I would say more of our right hemisphere, which I'll talk about, can be especially important in lowering our reactivity, which can come with mold toxins being in the body. So the way we diagnose mold toxicity, or at least I would say most of us who are treating mold toxicity, are now using what is called urine mycotoxin testing. And someone does a urine sample, and the report that we get back shows which toxins are present, or at least which toxins are on the initial report. It is not uncommon for new toxins to show up on follow-up testing after treatment or even for existing levels to rise as someone may be healing and better able to mobilize toxins. So someone could be feeling better and have their second test show higher results. So these tests are not an exact measure of how many toxins or how much toxicity is in the body, but rather indication of toxicity and an indication of how well someone is moving those toxins. So there are two labs that most of us are using. For those of us who are using these urine mycotoxin testing, the two most popular, I would say, are real-time lab and Great Plains labs. So real-time will measure five toxins. And to give you some of these names, 
Gliotoxin is one. That's something that's also appears to be made by candida or yeast. Another toxin is zeralinone. And what's interesting about that one is it appears to bind estrogen receptors. So in addition to its many impacts, it can also have some hormonal impacts. And they all, in fact, can have some hormonal impacts, but this one uh, more directly. A third is trichothecenes. And when you hear about black mold, which is kind of notorious, trichothecenes is one of the toxins made by stachybotrys. That's the black mold. However, it's not only black mold that's making mycotoxins, and it's not only black mold that's in water-damaged spaces. So the toxins that I'm talking about here are, for the most part, related to water damage. A fourth is aflatoxin, and a fifth is ochratoxin. And why I'm mentioning them, so you have the names, but also so you understand when I talk about treatment, why it's important to the best that we can that we identify which toxins are present because we're using specific binders for specific toxins. Another lab is Great Plains, and their technology that they're using is different, and they measure more than five toxins. However, in my own experience, having used both of these tests, I rely more heavily on real-time testing. Uh, The only toxin that I might have more confidence on with Great Plains would be ochratoxin. We often will do a provocation if possible, and that's where we'll have someone take a strong antioxidant like glutathione to mobilize toxins, and this could be for a week before doing the test. Some people I won't have do this because if they're especially sensitive or if they're especially fragile, I don't want to necessarily stir up toxicity and worsen their symptoms. So it's it's a case-by-case basis. And the other thing we might do is have someone take a hot bath or do exercise the night before they do the urine collection. And this is something that is done at home and sent to the lab with packaging that comes in the kit. So when we get those results, we look at which toxins are present, if any, and I would say for most of the people that I'm checking, there is toxicity present. Now, this is not a one-size-fits-all. Someone had recently asked on one of my professional online forums about where to find good information for mold protocols because they wanted to start treating people for mold. And my own experience has been that this is very individualized. While there are certain treatments that we use, this is not something where there's easily set protocols that are going to fit most people. The first thing that I consider, and my own training, as I mentioned previously, has been with Neil Nathan, who I would describe as one of the pioneers in this area. So when I'm speaking of us or we, I'm referring to those of us who have mentored or trained with him. And so we will share similar approaches. The first thing that we would consider would be, does this person have a strong constitution or do they have a sensitive constitution? Someone with a strong constitution, they may be able to go right to treatment with binders. 
And binders are substances that will bind the toxins in the gastrointestinal tract. So in the last podcast, I talked about how toxins will get into the body, usually through inhalation. The toxins will be on mold spores. And then they get into the body. They go to the liver, then the gallbladder, where they're bound to bile salts, which then carry them into the gastrointestinal tract. And from the gastrointestinal tract, if not bound, they're reabsorbed with the bile salts back into the body. So the binders are interrupting that process and carrying the toxins out of the body. So this isn't as if someone would take binders for a couple days and be good to go. This is a very gentle, gradual process of working the binders in, layering them one on top of the other, and then continuing them for for a period of time. And how long that takes can depend on a number of factors, which I'll mention. First, we would identify what is the highest toxin and then start to a binder for that. And so the instructions would be starting at a very low dose, working it up, increasing the dose every five to seven days if tolerated. And if any symptoms start to emerge, the binder is held until symptoms resolve and then resumed at the previously tolerated dose and left there. It's not something where people should push through to try to get to the other side of treatment. It will actually slow things down. So even though for many people that I work with, and even for my own experience with mold toxicity, there's a strong desire to set advanced treatment, but because sometimes things don't get stirred up for perhaps four days, it can sneak up on people and they forget that it could be the binders. Most of the binders are taken two hours away from food, medications, and supplements, so they're not binding those. And most of them can be taken at the same time. There's some exceptions to that. I'll tell you the names of some of the specific binders that we use. Most of these are over-the-counter, so things like activated charcoal will bind specific toxins, bentonite clay, chlorella, which is an algae derivative. These are binders that can often be taken together. Sarcomyces boulardii is a yeast probiotic and also will bind both gliotoxin and xeralinone. It can be taken with meals, so it has other benefits. It's also helpful for the treatment of yeast and what's called Clostridia difficile or C. diff. Another binder is NAC or N-acetylcysteine. This is also a precursor to glutathione. We also use it in what is called undermethylation. And you'll hear about it more in even conventional medicine being used in both the treatment of OCD and the treatment of addictions. So it is something that covers a lot of ground. It will bind gliotoxin. One of the toxins, ochratoxin, does typically require a medication, and the two that we use are both older cholesterol medications. One is cholestyramine, and you can get this at any pharmacy. However, usually there's sugar in it, and because sugar feeds mold, most of us try to avoid uh, using this and instead would use pure cholestyramine, which would be from a compounding pharmacy. 
another cholesterol medication that binds ochratoxin, but I would say not as effectively as cholestyramine would be well called. So when someone has a strong constitution, they may very easily get to the highest end of the range for the doses. And nonetheless, the doses are still started out low and worked up as tolerated and held if symptoms appear. However, if someone has a sensitive constitution, they may end up being on much lower doses and they may end up increasing the doses slowly. And I mention all of this because for those of us who treat a lot of people with sensitive constitutions, we often have people come to us who were started on a full schedule of binders all at once at what would be considered standard or maximum doses and had a horrible time uh, tolerating that and were quite discouraged and thinking they were not going to be able to heal from mold toxicity. And if someone has a great response to the binders, then they may just need to stay on the binders perhaps four to six months and then have their mycotoxin testing repeated. And either way, the likelihood is people's symptoms would be improving. However, if they're mobilizing toxins better, the measures could be increased. So if someone is having a symptomatic response that's quite dramatic, they may not need to go on to have treatment for what we would call colonization, and that's where there's treatment with antifungal medication, so not antibacterial. Antibiotics are to kill bacteria, however, antifungals are to kill things like yeast and mold. And while I say if their test comes back and there's no evidence of mold, then they may be able to go off binders and be pretty cleared of this issue. However, once someone has had mold toxicity, then we know that they are someone that is susceptible. If we know that someone's susceptible, it could make sense for them to stay on low-dose binders even indefinitely, just to prevent developing future mold toxicity. And as I'll talk about in the next podcast, when I address more the environmental issues, it, it can be difficult to completely avoid any possibility of having mold exposure. I mean, that would be impossible. But even if someone's very diligent about their home and their workplace and their car, they still could run into a problem and the binders are generally considered very safe especially if they are again away from food supplements and medication so if the response to binders is not dramatic then that is when we would consider antifungal treatment for colonization meaning mold has taken hold in the sinuses and gastrointestinal tract because candida is so common with mold toxicity, this is often the first step, and that would be adding in treatment for uh, yeast overgrowth or candida. I've previously done a podcast about candida, and we all have candida in the gastrointestinal tract. However, there can be overgrowth because of things like antibiotics 
or again, even mold toxicity. Sometimes very low zinc levels can contribute to this as well. I'll interject about diet here because both mold and yeast will thrive on the same foods, namely sugar and carbs. We typically recommend a diet that is somewhat of a modified paleo-type diet. Paleo is focused on animal protein and vegetables, and the reason for animal protein as opposed to other sources of protein is because other sources of protein usually come with a significant amount of carbohydrates, so beans, for example. Some individuals, even the carbohydrates from fruit is too much, and for some individuals, trace amounts of mold toxins in nuts and seeds can aggravate their symptoms. However, as I talk about mold toxicity, this is primarily due to water damage mold spores, not necessarily mold from food. This is perhaps the most challenging part of the treatment because with mold toxicity and yeast often comes significant carb craving. To emphasize this is not a one-size-fits-all approach, but this issue of diet can hold people back. I'll give specific references at the end that can help uh, for more detailed dietary information. So the antifungal treatments that we use for candida can be prescriptions. So this could be a medication like Nystatin, which is taken as usually as tablets and is not, for the most part, absorbed into the bloodstream. Other treatments could be herbal antifungals. Usually more than one is necessary. Usually it's a product that combines antifungal herbs. We also use biofilm disruptors. So microbes in the body can make films that cover these colonies and protect them. So supplements that would break down those biofilms would allow the antifungals to reach those microbes. And this issue of biofilms is something that left unaddressed could leave someone with ongoing problems with candida or mold. This is something too that's over the counter, not unlike herbal interventions. For sinus antifungals, we will use a range of prescription antifungals depending on how sensitive someone has been to the binders. So as I said previously, people can have a strong constitution and easily move up to the top range of the binders, and then others will be very sensitive and be on very low doses of the binders. And for those individuals, we would use antifungal nasal sprays that are less likely to aggravate their symptoms. Examples of those would be a Nystatin nasal spray. And even though Nystatin orally will only address yeast, intranasally it appears to also address mold. Another is fluconazole, and another is amphotericin B. For the gastrointestinal tract, amphotericin B is something that we will use. And then there are systemic antifungals, which are antifungals which are taken orally. However, they will go into the bloodstream and then be targeting the mold in the body from the bloodstream. So if it's in the sinuses, our sinuses are vascularized, and similarly with the gastrointestinal tract. So diflucan is a systemic antifungal that will treat yeast, 
And itraconazole is a systemic antifungal that will treat yeast and mold. For both of those, we will typically monitor liver functions to assure that they are not causing an elevation in liver functions or having any impact on the liver. There are other antifungals that I'm not mentioning, but those are the more common ones that we use. And all the while, the binders are continued. So I often will have people come to me who were put on antifungals for yeast and or mold who were not on adequate binders or the mold toxins that they had in their body weren't specifically identified. Perhaps they were using a test that didn't pick up the range of toxins. And so then when they were put on an antifungal, more toxins were released and there was no binders to kind of mop those toxins up. And they had pretty significant symptoms and keep someone from progressing appropriately in treatment and also be quite discouraged. So to comment further on those who are especially sensitive, sometimes starting the binders just more slowly can be all that is necessary. However, there are some individuals who are even more sensitive and starting even minuscule amounts of binders can trigger their symptoms. And this could be because they have problems with detoxification. It can also be because even smallest amount of mobilization of toxins is triggering mast cells. I have a previous episode on mast cell activation. This is a heightened immune response. And it can also be that the mobilization of toxins triggers that threat response. This could be a limbic or autonomic response. And with that can come a number of symptoms. And so a lot of work may need to be done beforehand before even introducing binders. And this may be programs such as limbic system retraining. And this is basically a program based on neuroplasticity. And there are various programs, the most popular being DNRS or the Dynamic Neural Retraining System. The other is the Gupta program. And these will help essentially rewire the brain so as to not be so easily triggered by not only emotional stressors, but environmental stressors, food sensitivities, certain odors. So when people are having high limbic system reactivity, they can go quickly not only into a central nervous system overwhelm, they can also have their immune system triggered. So by calming down the central nervous system, specifically the limbic system, this can have pretty dramatic effects on someone's immune reactivity. And even before starting any mold treatment, for some, even with neurologic symptoms, we will see an improvement in symptoms. So it's quite remarkable. The other piece that can be built in before starting binders can be accessing the vagus nerve. So training the rest and digest part of our nervous system that is part of our autonomic or automatic nervous system, really training that into a place of safety so that, again, treatment would be better tolerated. 
there are things that we can use to help stabilize those reactive mast cells. And both of the interventions I just mentioned will. There are particular supplements that we use as well. And again, I've discussed this in a previous podcast. For those who are especially sensitive, even supplements to stabilize mast cells could be problematic. That's why the prior two interventions are especially important. The other aspect of preparing someone who's sensitive would be to help support pathways of detoxification. And while this can be done with particular supplements, I have a previous podcast on detoxification, this can also be done with using sauna, um, good hydration. For anyone that's working through mold toxicity, I would recommend good hydration, assuring that they're having daily bowel movements so these toxins are moving out. Sauna or any programs that could mobilize toxins may not be well tolerated. So this points to how individualized this is. And while it's arguable that anyone going through a detoxification program may benefit from supplements to support detoxification, because there are a number of pieces both to addressing mold toxins and antifungals if necessary, and even for many who I also have on targeted nutrients to address nutrient imbalances, it can be a lot. And if someone seems to be tolerating the binders well and overall appears to be detoxifying well, I would not necessarily my own practice opt to putting them on more things. It just becomes unmanageable. So we really have to prioritize what's practical and necessary for each person. Before I comment on issues that can hold people back, I'd like to comment on the other root causes of brain-related symptoms that can be caused or aggravated by mold toxicity. So I've mentioned mast cell activation being as part of a heightened immune reactivity, autonomic dysfunction, which is where our automatic nervous system is dysregulated. I've mentioned the limbic system, part of our central nervous system becoming overly reactive. But there are also the nutrient imbalances that can be made worse. So pyrroles can go up. Copper-zinc imbalances can be made worse, so high copper by itself will cause symptoms. Low zinc will cause symptoms. And methylation, more commonly undermethylation, can be worsened by mold toxicity. I mentioned candida can be made worse, so mold toxicity can keep someone stuck in terms of candida. It can be an underlying problem that's causing immune dysregulation, making someone also more vulnerable to Lyme and its co-infections such as Bartonella and Babesia. It can make someone more susceptible to viruses and viral infections that can contribute to brain-related symptoms. And it can contribute to autoimmune psychiatric conditions such as autoimmune encephalopathy or what we call PANS or PANDAS, and this is where a microbial presence in the body is triggering the immune system to act on part of the brain. And so this is 
not unlike any other autoimmune condition. However, the brain is what is being impacted. And very often symptoms that would be seen with that with PANS and PANDAS is more in children with an acute onset of OCD symptoms. But autoimmune encephalopathy in adults can look like psychosis, so hallucinations and delusions. Electromagnetic hypersensitivity is another root cause to brain-related symptoms that can be caused or made worse by mold toxicity. So when I see someone that has electromagnetic hypersensitivity, so this is a sensitivity to things like Wi-Fi, cell phones, but it can also be electric wiring in their house. I have a podcast on this as well. If someone has this, I highly recommend that they be tested for mold toxicity. There are studies that show a relationship between the production of toxins by molds and even how rapidly molds will multiply in the presence of high EMF. Lastly is considering what factors can hold people back. And I should say the duration of treatment can vary widely depending on the length of time someone has been dealing with mold toxicity and even colonization. Someone could be dealing with this since a childhood exposure and having had multiple exposures through their life. And I would say that was likely the case with me. And there are others who maybe weren't having any problems until they were in an environment that they had a severe exposure. And so for some people, it could be four to six months of being on binders. For others, it could be a treatment that is maintained potentially even up to two or three years. The more we're learning, the more we're finding the aspects that are holding people back. For example, EMF exposure does appear to hold people back from their healing. And this was not something that we would have considered as much in the past. Teaching people how to lower their exposure is something that would help with their treatment response, even if they're not obviously having symptoms of electromagnetic hypersensitivity. I mentioned diet, which is very difficult. Once someone does lower their carbohydrates, usually their cravings will subside. And once they're getting treatment also, and those microbes are coming down, both yeast and mold, the cravings for carbs will subside. The other aspect that I am going to focus on heavily is on if someone's still living in an environment with mold. And there's a lot of aspects to um, addressing mold in the home. I would say that individuals who are dealing with a history of trauma or are still in high-stress relationships or work environments, that that is going to impact their healing. And that relates to our autonomic nervous system. If our body doesn't feel safe, and we might feel in our mind that we're perfectly safe, but if our body doesn't feel safe, and that can be happening out of our consciousness, then we will have problems with detoxification and healing. So that's another piece that can hold people back from moving forward. And that is why I call what I do holistic psychiatry, because I don't think just going after toxins or microbes 
or nutrient levels is ultimately what brings people to healing and why I try to balance out these right and left brain, as I call them, approaches. I hope this was helpful and that it has demystified the testing and treatment for mold toxicity. The next episode will be on testing and addressing environments that have water damage and mold. If you know someone you think could benefit, please consider sharing. If you would like to help me get this information out into the world, please consider engaging on one of the social media sites, which will be linked in the description of this podcast. If you have questions or if interest in other topics, please let me know at those sites as well. Otherwise, I'll look forward to connecting with you in a future episode. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.